0: Luke's Gospel, the 2nd chapter, and we start here at verse one. Here once again in the Word of our God. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made by Serenius, who was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one was his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth and Judea. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this morning the blessing of his word. We come, of course, to a familiar text. In fact, so familiar that even the world, largely the Western world, that is, knows this account even through our authorized version. Most of the world can repeat to us the words that we just read almost without any effort. And it's striking, isn't it? that as we move into the winter months, the world demonstrates that they have some familiarity with the historical account. The world even recognizes some kind of familiarity with with the things that we find here in both Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Friends, it's a striking thing because, of course, the world is familiar with the birth of Christ while still being strangers to the person of Christ. Utter strangers... To the one who was born. And yet so familiar with the circumstances of his birth. You see friend if you look at this text you can't miss. That what we have here is not just a a history for us. To reflect on. Not just an account for us to reflect upon its chronology. Not just an account that shows us various historical details. but, But of course this is an account that is supposed to show us Christ himself. Not just what has happened to him, but something about his person. If we look at the birth of Christ and we fail to see the person of Christ there. Friend, if we could read these gospel accounts and only recognize the history. Only construct a timeline. We've misread the gospels entirely because as the gospel writers tell us themselves. Their purpose here is to convey to us the Evangelion. The true good news of Jesus Christ. Which consists in his person and in his work. Yes, of course, the gospel writers are giving us history. But, friend, they're giving us so much more than that. Even in Luke's gospel, even in these seven verses we take up this morning, we have something about the person of Christ that we can't miss. Now, friend, as we look at this text, it's important for me to illustrate why we come now to Luke's gospel. Having left Matthew's gospel and the naming of Christ, we come now to that moment in which he's actually born. In some sense, we're overlapping the timeline. Matthew did present to us, of course, the birth and naming of Christ. But we come to Luke's gospel here because it shows to us not Joseph's vision any longer, but the way in which they come to Bethlehem. And so in the timeline, we find ourselves leaving Nazareth and at last coming to the city of David. And as we look at this text, these first seven verses, we do find that. We find the movement from Nazareth to Bethlehem we find that as Luke conveys this to us, he does so by taking us through the broadest aspects of life, really, at the time. He begins here on an imperial level. He starts with the decree of Caesar Augustus, in which the entire world, the entire civilized world is comprised. And then he narrows a little more, and he brings us to the family of David that would be called to Bethlehem. And then finally, in the seventh verse, he narrows even further. To take us simply to Jesus Christ. This narrowing. Going from the broadest aspects of the known civilized world. To come to Christ. We shouldn't miss. Luke of course is writing about a gospel. That is not restricted to Palestine. Not restricted to Bethlehem. But rightfully he locates the birth of Jesus Christ. In worldwide events. Because his gospel is a worldwide gospel. Now as we look at this text. Friend we're told several things. One, we're told something about the circumstances. We're told that, of course, all of these things take place under that decree of Caesar Augustus in which the entire world is going to be taxed. Now, the taxation that's in view here we shouldn't understand is that annual taxation that one would raise as a government. This is really best understood as a kind of registration in which all the world is registered. In the, Roman, ...in the Roman provincial records as being citizens of Rome... ...or at least being citizens of territories ruled by Rome. This is registration. This is a kind of citizenship. A kind of, a kind of census that Caesar is taking here to see who all really is under his domain. And what's striking about Roman census, of course, is the fact that... ...not only would Romans require heads of households to be registered in this way... But for the first time in the ancient world, Rome would require both women and children to be part of the census. They too were required to be named. And we can even find these records. Records from the time, at least from Egypt, show that much. They show that not only the home itself, under the head of the home, but even the members of the home were comprised in the registration. And so that's precisely what's happening in our text. Caesar Augustus. Has summoned all the world to come that he might number those who are his subjects. And so Mary, a woman very nearly to be delivered, is forced to go to Bethlehem. An 80 mile journey or so, even though she's in such delicate condition. We're told here that they are to go to their ancestral homes. And this is where Joseph, we're told, is again of the house and lineage of David. He goes to the city of David, to Bethlehem. What was striking about that, friend, of course, is the fact that Joseph doesn't live there ordinarily. He's of the house of David. He's actually, as we saw in Matthew's Gospel, the only legal heir to the throne of David. And yet he lives in the northernmost parts of the province. This has led some commentators to raise the question, perhaps, were the Herods afraid of the house of David residing so close to Jerusalem? In other words, was Joseph in a kind of exile, and only through Caesar Augustus was he actually brought back to Bethlehem? It's a suggestion that commentators make, but a striking one. One that now brings a son of David back to the city of David. And then finally, friend, this text holds out to us the idea that now everything has been accomplished. Now, of course, Mary is to be delivered. And as you look at the text, friend, it's a striking thing for a few reasons. It's striking, first of all, because of how understated that seems to be. I mean, just consider this for a moment. Friend, Luke doesn't tell us who all were present at the birth of Christ. He doesn't tell us precisely what time of day. In fact, for that matter, he doesn't even record for us the date of Christ's birth. In a very understated and very unremarkable way. He simply says, and Jesus Christ, who is son of God, son of the most high, he simply says he was born. It's a striking thing. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But as Luke gives us this account of Christ's birth, he also adds this piece that we can't miss either. With that understated, almost unremarkable statement of Christ's entrance out of the womb what he says, he simply says here that there was no room for them in the inn. Almost as though Luke here is per, per preventing us from thinking badly of Joseph and Mary. For, for being ill prepared for the birth of such a son. But I want you to notice, friend, it's a striking thing, isn't it? Not just that there was no room for this couple in the inn. But behind this idea is that there was no room for them in Bethlehem. We would almost miss this, and and it's tempting for us to draw down much upon this, but, but friend, do you realize that here you have the son of David, Joseph, the rightful heir to the throne? You have, of course, him as he is son of Heli, which, according to Jewish tradition, was the head of the Sanhedrin. This royal son walks into his own hometown, surrounded by his own relatives. And he needs to look for an end, because none will admit him entrance in their homes. I don't know if that's ever struck you before, but it's a striking thing, isn't it? That this one who should be entertained widely by the whole province has no room offered to him by his own relatives in Bethlehem. It's just a thought, but we'll come back to that, God willing, in a moment's time. As we look at this text, of course, friend, we can't miss that Luke is presenting to us a very simple reality. And that is that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke 2 verses 1 to 7 show us that Micah's prophecy is fulfilled. Micah then wrote, Thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, thou that though thou beest the littlest among the thousand of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And what's striking is, of course, that this text shows us something that is almost unpredictable in many ways. If you're an astute reader of the Gospel accounts up to this point, you'll notice where the timeline is taken. We've started first of all in Jerusalem. And then we've gone to Nazareth. Then we've gone to the Judean hills. From the Judean hills back to Nazareth. And the astute reader of the Scriptures are going to ask the question, "Well, well, if this is the Messiah, how are we getting to Bethlehem? If this is the rightful heir, the everlasting heir to the throne of David, how do we get back to the city of David? And what's striking about this text is how providence does this. Note it wasn't Mary or Joseph's idea to go to Bethlehem. If that were the case, we would wonder, well, perhaps they're just trying to fulfill the prophecy. No, friend, what's striking is a historical fact. God and His providence moved through Caesar Augustus to bring them to a place... A place that otherwise we might not have expected to see them. We see here the wisdom, the wonderful wisdom of God as he brings to pass that which he's promised. But even behind that, friend, we can't miss that these seven verses convey to us a reality that's so often overlooked. As we look at the details that we've just looked at briefly in these past few minutes, we find that gospel paradox... We find through the emphasis that Luke places in this history. Just the humiliation of Christ. I mean, friend as you're reading Matthew 1. As you come away from the first chapter of Luke's gospel. What are you expecting? If we could just for a moment. I know this is difficult. But if we could just for a moment. Distance ourselves from our memory of these events. And simply hold our gaze on chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel and of Luke's. What would we expect? This is the Son of God that we're expecting. The one who is Son of the Most High. He is the one who is coming. And oh, by the way, He is the royal Son. The lawful and rightful heir to the throne of David. What would we expect in His birth? Surely we would expect palaces. Surely we would expect princes and kings to pay homage. Surely we would expect great fanfare both in heaven and on earth to attend His birth who is called Son of the Highest. But friend, what do we find instead? We find that even the Mother of Christ is lumped in with the rest of the imperial world as she's forced in her delicate condition to make an 80-mile journey to the South. We find also in Bethlehem, Joseph very much seems to be spurned, the adopted father of Jesus Christ. Spurned by his own countrymen, by his own relatives. More than that, friend, in birth, in the 7th verse, Luke is very careful to tell us what attends Christ. Our Christ must be swaddled. He must be nurtured by his creatures. On top of that, of course, he must be laid in a manger. Laid in a trough among straw. Friend, if you are reading those first chapters of Luke's and Matthew's Gospels, and you find this, certainly, it's almost unsettling. Almost and genuinely shocking. To find he who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, entering the world in such a way, in such a lowly way. But you see, friend, the Gospel writers emphasize these very points. Even if it doesn't tell us even the date of Christ's birth. It's careful to tell us, How lowly Christ's birth really was. A friend as you read through the gospels. You can't miss this either. This is also Luke's particular emphasis. Uh, Just for a moment. You think about how Matthew's gospel begins. It begins with the kingly lineage of David. Luke's gospel begins. With the appearance of an angel. First to a priest. And then to to a little girl. In Matthew's gospel, you have the royal adoption of Christ emphasized. In Luke's gospel, you have his lowly birth. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 2, you have, of course, the appearance of eastern kings to pay homage. In Luke's gospel, you have merely shepherds called to give gifts. Luke is emphasizing something, friend, that is so so drastically forgotten. And it's something that shows us That even the birth of Christ tells us something about his person. And what is that? This emphasis on humiliation reminds us of one very simple truth, and that is Christ took on man's frailty in the incarnation. Christ took on man's frailty in the incarnation. And I want us to consider that under three headings the subjection of Christ, as we see it in this text, the suffering of Christ, and finally, to consider also how this text shows us the satisfaction that Christ makes. And so first of all, the subjection. The subjection of Christ. Luke's gospel begins by taking us first of all to a decree. Not to a divine decree, but to Caesar Augustus. To a pagan who now rules over the people of God. Who now has exercised dominion over the land of promise. That's where Luke's gospel begins. And friend, what's striking is this is the beginning. This is how Luke tells us the birth of the one who is King of Kings, the only and supreme potentate over all. He begins with the decree of another ruler. The circumstances of Christ's birth are presented in Luke two under the auspices and under the influences of a Roman overlord. You see, friend, what you have here is something that now will be reflected throughout the life of Christ. Something begun here, begun even in the account of his birth, but something that runs right through his estate of humiliation. And that is Christ's kingship is veiled. In his estate of humiliation, Christ's kingship is in a kind of way veiled, eclipsed for a time. We see this even in Luke's Gospel elsewhere. I mean, note how the writer tells us about Christ's relationship to his parents. He was subject to his parents. I'm thinking here of Luke 2.52. That word subject, when the apostle looks at a home, he uses that word to describe precisely what a parent is supposed to have over his children. Speaking of those who are elders in the church, he says they are to have their children in subjection with all gravity. That's the word that's used to describe Christ in relation to Mary and Joseph in Luke 2.52. Luke 2.52. Again, when the apostle looks at a home or a household and he sees servants, here's what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. And Luke dares to write of the king of kings as being subject to his parents, creatures of God, those who subsisted and lived only by his will, only according to his own provision. Here you have the king of kings subjected even in his birth to Caesar Augustus. And then later on throughout his whole life. To all these other worldly powers. From the very onset we find the king of kings. Whose royal authority and majesty is veiled. Eclipsed. It really is the very thing that the apostle has in mind in Philippians 2 that we read. It's that word that is often referred to theologically as, as the emptying of Christ. Is kenosis. There the apostle writes in Philippians 2 verse 7. He says he made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a serpent. Friend do you even see how Luke 2 prepares us to see the emptying of Christ. Or, or the making of himself of no reputation. He brings himself under even in this moment as God of providence. Under the decree of a Roman. Under Caesar Augustus no less. A pagan. You see friend this eclipse was pervasive and powerful. The apostle writes none of the princes of this world knew him. For had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory walks on earth. And yet even in his birth his circumstances seem to be dictated by Romans. Romans. It really fulfills everything that the, that the prophet Isaiah promised, doesn't it? As the world goes about their lives in this moment, as they go day by day, they don't recognize that something drastic has taken place, that all of history has been altered. They can say, friend, as the, apostle, as the prophet tells them that they would, we found, no, we found we shall see him and that there is no beauty that we should desire him. We esteemed him not. He came to his own. His own received him not. Though he was king and lord over all, friend, even note here in his birth, he demonstrates that in his humiliation, his royal majesty would be veiled. You see, friend, it's a veiled kingship, this thing that we see here in this gospel. Not a palace, but a manger. Not the homage of other earthly kings, but under the decree of an earthly king. Christ comes to us. You see, friend, it's striking because this is precisely the opposite of what we would expect of such a king. I mean, this is precisely the opposite of what we would expect of an earthly king. There, of course, is that story where where Richard Griffin and Elizabeth II had met an American tourist. The American didn't recognize the queen and and so the queen allowed him to continue in his ignorance. They took a picture of together the queen and this man who didn't know that he was standing in the presence of royalty. And the queen turns after the American leaves and says to Griffin, she says, hopefully someone tells him who I am. Isn't that a striking thing for an earthly king, an earthly prince, princess here in this case... Hoping that somebody would say to this stranger who didn't recognize royalty when it was before him. Hopefully somebody will tell him who I am. And yet friend our Christ comes into the world the king of kings and lord of lords. And they did not know him. They did not know him. If an earthly prince longs for recognition and for majesty. Friends certainly the king of kings deserves it all. And yet here we see his birth. Veiled in subjection. Friend, we ought to marvel as we look at this text that he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, made himself of no reputation. But the second heading then this morning, friend, is the suffering of Christ as we have it in this text. And here, friend, we step into a deep mystery. The subjection of Christ we understand. The veiling of His kingship we we get. But but this aspect, friend, we so often, so often overlook. You see in this text, in verse 7, you have Mary doing something that we would expect any mother to do. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him, In a manger. Friend, I want you to notice what all of these things indicate. Christ must be shielded from the elements, he must be swaddled. Christ, who is the incarnate Son of God, must find a place to rest. Christ makes himself dependent upon the nurturing of his mother a creature although he was creator friend he's taken up in arms as the weakest of beings and what's striking about this text friend is the reality that in the incarnation Christ took upon himself a weakened human nature the apostle puts it this way God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh you know what he means there Note that he says here, first of all, the likeness of sinful flesh. He is not contaminated at all with original sin. Well then, what does the Apostle mean, the likeness of sinful flesh? Good one, I think, helpfully paraphrases. He says, he was clothed with infirmities like unto us as sinners. He was clothed with infirmities like unto us as sinners. Or put it another way, as one writer put it, centuries ago. He did not have sinful flesh... But he had the likeness of sinful flesh in the fact that he was able to suffer. For man's flesh before sin was not subject to suffering. Friend, you see here a Christ who must be swaddled, kept from the elements, a Christ who will become fatigued, and so must find a place of rest. A Christ who must be fed and so must be nurtured by his mother Mary. You find a Christ, in other words, friend, who is not in the full strength of humanity. And by the way, you find a Christ here who is not in the fullness of what Adam's humanity was. Adam could exist quite fine in the garden without clothing. The elements harmed him not at all. He was not weakened by the effects of sin. But in the incarnation, see the second Adam. See the kind of humanity that he takes upon himself. Friend, if we really wrestled with this, if we grasped it, we would marvel. We would marvel every time we came across those passages of scripture that show us Christ taking upon himself a weakened form. Friend, what 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 volumes could be written? What tears could be shed just to the thought that we read here that Jesus wept? What marvel should we have that Jesus was asleep in the ship? How shocking should we find it that we're told that Christ hungered and was thirsty, though he was the bread of heaven and living water itself. When Christ came in the incarnation, friend, he took upon himself, weakened humanity, weakened humanity. It's a contrast, isn't it, then, between the first and the second Adam that we can't miss. The first Adam needed no clothing. The elements could not harm them. The second Adam comes into the world and he requires swaddling. But as we close, friend, we come to our third and our final point. And that is the satisfaction that Christ makes. This suffering, friend, is not accidental. It belongs necessarily to the work of the mediator. Christ is going to suffer as a man. That he might be the second Adam. That he might be the savior of all of those. For all of their lives were subject to death's bondage. He would come. From his very inception. As a suffering servant. You see, friend, what we have in Luke's gospel is just this, that Christ's life commenced with suffering. It commenced in this world with suffering because he was all of his life a suffering Savior. Note how the scriptures speak generally of the sufferings of Christ, just for a moment. I'll take you back to the prophet Isaiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Then Peter as well. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example. That we should follow in his steps. Or take Christ's words himself. Describing his whole life. The son of man came not to be ministered unto. But to minister. To live the life of a servant. Now friend, I read those texts to you for a very simple reason. In all of those texts, we immediately go to the cross. We immediately assume that all these writers are speaking only about the cross. Those three hours of Calvary. Or maybe we might include Gethsemane as well. But friend, note the generality of their statements. His whole life is to be characterized as a man of sorrows. And his whole life is to be characterized this way. Because his life, his whole life... His whole life of obedience and of suffering is what is necessary for our salvation, according to the covenant. What do I mean? Allow me to illustrate this through a quote by Jonathan Edwards. Both Christ's satisfaction for sin and also his meriting happiness by his righteousness were carried on through the whole time of his humiliation. Christ's satisfaction for sin was not by his last sufferings only though principally by them, that all his sufferings and all his humiliation from the first moment of his incarnation to his resurrection were propitiatory and satisfactory. The mean circumstances in which he was born, being born of a poor virgin in a stable, laid in a manger, his taking human nature upon him in its low state under those infirmities brought upon it by the fall, his being born in the form of sinful flesh, All his sufferings in his infancy and childhood and all that which he suffered through the whole course of his life was of a propitiatory and satisfactory nature. Why do we have, friend, this text? Why do we have the birth of Christ so so lowly given to us here? Why must Christ be swaddled? Oh, why must he be one who is subject to all the pains and infirmities of this life? Friend, because from the cradle to the cross, Christ was making satisfaction. Yes, fully and finally in the cross, atonement is made, and so Christ may say then, it is finished. But His whole life, beloved, from Bethlehem on, was lived in suffering to redeem you. We often say, when I behold the wondrous cross... And the hope is that we do so with tears. But but friend, have you thought of the cradle? Have you thought that the Son of God was incarnate, was brought into a place of suffering for you there? That the infant Christ was given for you as much as Christ on the cross was given for you? Friend, when we come to Luke 2, we should weep. When we see Him laid in a manger, requiring the nurturing of His mother, we should weep because it was required for you. That even this infant Christ would weep for you, would suffer for you, that his whole life would be characterized as sorrow for you. Friend, as we look at this text, we can't help but see, we can't help but see the indebtedness we are to free grace. How lowly was Christ born how willing was he to take upon himself a human form, a human nature that was tainted, not with sin, but, friend, with pain and with suffering for you. Even from Luke 2, beloved, you and I are only seeing our debt of love that we owe to God. As we close, friend, we have to remember here then that the birth of Christ and his sufferings begin at the same time he becomes a man of sorrows from the incarnation even if we don't consider the incarnation an act of humiliation and only an act of condescension we can't miss the fact that even the gospel writers show us that as soon as he drew breath in this world he did so in a lowly estate. for you of course the question is beloved does this move us Does this move us? When we see such a Christ. Even in his infancy given for you. Friend does it move you. To loathe sin more. Does it it move you to a point where you will not insist upon your rights. Seeing that he who is king of kings and lord of lords. For your sake. Was willing to be born so lowly. What does this text do for us? right? But then finally, as we look at this, beloved, we can't miss that there is so much of comfort here. You see here, we embark in the history of the gospel and we need to be confronted with the fact that this history is one that shows us one token of love after another. If even the infant Christ has been given for his people... And beloved, every single account that we encounter here in the Gospels show us even more the love of God. Tertullian put it this way. He said, for those who don't see that the whole life of Christ was propitiatory and satisfactory. That all of his sufferings from infancy to the cross. That all of these belong to the satisfaction that Christ would make. He says, here's what the effect is. This opinion rests from pious souls, the consolation thence derived And smashes from them the innumerable evidences of his amazing love. Know what Tureton is saying there. If we don't see, friend, that even in the cradle, Christ was a suffering servant suffering for you. Friend, you are missing amazing tokens of divine love. I hope as we leave this text so familiar as it is to us. That we leave it not just looking to the cross, but recognizing here, as all the orthodox acknowledge... We have a picture even here of a Christ who is suffering for you. For those who had come to Christ, Christ was born for you into suffering. Born for you in a state of humiliation. The infant Christ. The crucified Christ. And praise be to God, the resurrected Christ, all for you. Amen.